Welcome to The Last American Vagabond. I am excited and honored to be bringing this to you guys today. Joining me will be James Corbett and Brock West to be going over James Corbett and Brock West uh, together, their, their series that went, that's come out in the years past, culminating with the September 11th new edition, which we'll be doing as well. And I'd like to welcome them to the show. and We can do the introduction together. How are you guys today? Doing fine. Good to see you. Pleasure to be here with you guys. So essentially what we're doing here is a watch along Q&A. We're going to be watching the first episode of, uh, well, I'll just show you the page here. You guys can check out for yourselves. And the secret history of Al-Qaeda. False flag, the secret history of Al-Qaeda. This is the origin part of it, episode one. We're going to do a watch along with you guys to kind of refresh everyone's memory on, on what, and to be quite honest, I watched this again between yesterday and today and just really did forget how much important information is in this documentary. And I'm really looking forward to maybe some comments from James specifically about, you know, what has changed since then and what's going on and how relevant it is to today, more, far more than just foreign policy, in my opinion, but we're going to watch through that. And then next week, as and I'll show you guys again on the, on the landing page we have here, you can see we have part one for August 28th, part two on September 4th, and then culminating with the brand new world, uh, premiere of the new documentary in regard to or in, for September 11th. And I'm really excited about that because it's a really important year for this to be discussed, I think. So any, any comments you guys want to make before we get into the documentary? And then, you know, oh, and, and by the way, I will say we'll be doing a Q&A afterward. So make sure you stick around. And we're only going to be looking at the Odyssey chat because all you jokers on YouTube, you shouldn't be there. But we yes. will be pirate streaming today. <laughs> that, is, that is my message, actually, to open up. <laughs> This is an emergency transmission to anyone who might be out there in YouTube land or on some other control platform. Go, go, go elsewhere. You are not getting the full picture. You're probably going to lose our voices. Yes, yes, that's the real point of this, isn't it? So welcome to the Corbett slash Vagabond Pirate stream. And thank you all for tuning in for this. I'm very excited for this because, as you say, I think this is an exceptionally important and relevant uh, story to be looking at right now. Because it strikes me, again, with renewed vigor every single time I think about it, that we are only ever allowed to talk about this story and this story and this story, whatever the big stories are at the moment. So at the moment, what is it? Mar-a-Lago, uh, the remnants of COVID, monkeypox, Ukraine. That, that's kind of the, re that's the scope of what we're allowed to think and talk about. And we tend to forget the last two decades of the only thing we were allowed to talk about during that time, which was the mm. phony baloney war of terror. How about if we actually process and think about these things and really dive into them so that we are then better able to deconstruct what is happening in the present moment? Um, because I think this is exceptionally important. And not only that, but it is relevant to what's going on today, because as you will see, especially towards the end of part three, I think this does dovetail exactly into the narrative that they're trying to set for all of us, what the entire phony baloney war of terror was really about, was ultimately about you and me and everyone else being subject to the constant scrutiny. You're a potential terrorist. That's what this is really about. And that's where this is ultimately driving. Having said that, yeah, it's been a year since I released part, we released part one. It's, uh, I, I'm, even I probably forget some of the things that are in here. So <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to that myself. And yes, let's take chats and comments and questions. Um, and we'll, uh, I think we'll, let, let's watch the full for first part. And then we'll, we'll come back at the end for a chat. How about that? 
Absolutely. And, you know, if, if, if James decides to want to stop and comment, we will do that. But yeah, the plan today is to watch this through. And in the future episodes we discuss, we're probably going to be stopping in, in between somewhere. <clears throat> I'll just add one last thing to your point that you said there about the, the overlap here is mind blowing for me, especially with the deep research around Ukraine specifically and the whole setup that's been happening there. The overlap, especially with this first episode, is just incredible to me. And I'll we'll address that at the end. I just think that's incredible. Brock, anything you wanted to add before we get started? Just, you know, say hello and everything. So everyone in the chat's like, oh, my God, Brock's here. So <laughs> happy to see you. <laughs> happy to see you guys, too. And happy to see everyone in the chat there. And, um, yeah, very excited to do this live stream with everybody. Um, this has been a massive pro uh, a project and undertaking by the Call Report. And, um, yeah, so it's going to be really good to get a refresher uh, just before we release part three in a couple of weeks. Um, and, yeah, let's, um, let's roll the tape. Awesome. Here we go. Kandahar Province, Afghanistan, May 1998. John Miller, an ABC News correspondent who would go on to become the FBI's chief spokesman, ends an 11-day journey through the wilds of the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. The first thing he notices is the rumbling of the generators providing the camp with power and the smell of gasoline. The second thing he notices is a hail of bullets. Bin Laden's convoy is arriving. Osama Bin Laden is flanked by seven bodyguards who, as Miller immediately recognizes, are simply there to put on a show. Their eyes darted in every direction for any attacker, he later recounted. This was either merely theatrical or entirely pointless because with hundreds of rounds being fired into the air, it would have been impossible to pinpoint an assassin. Following the security detail into the hut, there Miller became one of the handful of Western journalists to interview the elusive Osama bin Laden. We believe that the biggest thieves in the world are Americans, and the biggest terrorists on earth are the Americans. The only way for us to fend off these assaults is by using similar means. We do not differentiate between those dressed in military uniforms and civilians. They're all targets in this fatwa. Miller has traveled halfway around the world to interview bin Laden, the reclusive terrorist leader who has just issued a religious fatwa requiring Muslims to kill Americans. But this interview, too, is just for show. Forced to submit his questions in writing ahead of time, Miller is informed that the answers will not be translated for him. There will be no follow-up questions. It is spectacle, theater and little else. As such, it is a fitting introduction to the man who would become the boogeyman of the 21st century. The interview was followed in short order by a more explosive drama. What are your future plans? You'll see them and hear about them in the media. God willing. Car bombs exploded outside the U.S. embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam on the morning of August 7, 1998. U.S. Navy officials in Bahrain today said suspected suicide bombers... ...badly damaged in a terrorist attack in Yemen... American sailors were killed, injured, missing... In Yemen today, the, the U.S.
around the world. A frightened and confused public received their introduction to the Age of Terror on the morning of September 11, 2001, through the media. It was there, in the flickering images of their TV screens, that the masses began to learn about the world of Islamic terrorism and of the cave-dwelling Saudi exile in Afghanistan who was bringing that terror to their doorstep. Tell us a bit about Osama bin Laden. Uh, what sort of resources and manpower and money he's got and what he's trying to achieve? What is Osama bin Laden? Is he a politician? Is he a warrior? Is he a preacher? A little of all? A little of all, I think, sir. He's a millionaire Saudi businessman believed to be living in exile in Afghanistan. He controls and finances Al-Qaeda, an umbrella network of Islamic militants. He is a... a a uh, very soft-spoken man. A man who is prepared to use overwhelming force uh, in pursuit of his objectives. He is the face that has been put on this by almost right. everyone. A man of, of eloquence. He has declared all U.S. citizens legitimate targets of attack. Well, when I was in Afghanistan just a couple of days ago, uh, I, I heard that he had... Operations in at least 55 countries. Including last year's bombing of the USS Cole in Yemen the mastermind behind the bombings of two U.S. embassies in Africa. In the last attack on the World Trade Center eight years ago. Bernard Lewis has called him almost a poetic speaker of Arabic. Meanwhile, Osama bin Laden is a name that we have been hearing all day long as an individual who may, and we emphasize may, be responsible for these terrorist acts. It is a name we have heard before as well. We all know the story of bin Laden and al-Qaeda. The story that was repeated ad nauseum in the days, weeks, and months after the catastrophic, catalyzing events of 9-11. So often was that story repeated that the hypnotized public forgot that it was, at base, just that. A story. In the ahistorical fable of TV soundbites, terrorism is a modern invention, created out of whole cloth by Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. And at the same time, Islamic fundamentalism is a force of nature, something that has always existed in the Middle East, the product, perhaps, of some sandstorm on the Arabian Peninsula in the distant past. But this is a lie. In truth, the rise of Islamic fundamentalism in the modern era and the rise of terrorism as a political tool cannot be understood without confronting some very well-documented but long-repressed history. Ever since the mid-18th century, when the British East India Company gained dominion over the Indian subcontinent, the history of Islam as a political and cultural force has been intimately tied to the fortunes of empire and the aims of the Western powers. The British Empire in particular did much to shape the map of the modern-day Middle East and to influence the course of its religious and political forces. This influence can be seen throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. Britain's gradual takeover of the Indian subcontinent led to the British Empire becoming, in the estimation of Winston Churchill, the greatest Mohammedan power in the world. The 19th century great game between Victorian England and Tsarist Russia for control of Central Asia saw the British propping up unpopular Islamic rulers throughout the region as a buffer between Russia and the crown jewel of the British Empire, India. Britain's desire to maintain its access to India led to the British conquest of Egypt in 1882, resulting in 40 years of British rule and a military presence in the country that was not removed until the Suez Crisis of 1956. From Khartoum to Constantinople, Jerusalem to Jakarta, no part of the Muslim world could escape the influence of the British crown. 
Sometimes that influence was used to strengthen the rule of Islamic hardliners. Sometimes, as with the Modest Rebellion in Sudan, that influence was used to put down Islamic uprisings. But in each case, the British Empire's goal was clear to use whatever means at its disposal to undermine movements and governments unfavorable to its rule, and to install and encourage those forces that were willing to cooperate with the crown. This was evident in India, where George Francis Hamilton, Secretary of State for India, wrote in 1886 of the British strategy of using Muslim and Hindu divisions in the country to their advantage, along the lines of the old Roman imperial strategy of divide and rule. I think the real danger to our rule, not now, but say 50 years hence, is the gradual adoption and extension of Western ideas of agitation organization. And if we could break educated Indians into two sections holding widely different views, we should, by such a division, strengthen our position against the subtle and continuous attack which the spread of education must make upon our system of government. We should so plan educational textbooks that the differences between community and community are further strengthened. But perhaps no clearer example of the British Empire's role in shaping the modern Muslim world can be found than the story of the ascendance of the House of Saud and the formation of the modern day Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Once again, British fingerprints can be found on every aspect of the story. When Britain began contemplating a shift from its centuries long policy of supporting the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East, it was Captain William Shakespeare, a British civil servant and explorer, Who made the first official contact with Ibn Saud, the progenitor of the Saudi dynasty who would go on to found the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia? In addition to taking the first photographs of the future Saudi king, Shakespeare became Ibn Saud's friend and military advisor, helping to steer the rising Arab leader away from alliance with the Ottomans and into a treaty with the British. Shakespeare died on the battlefield at Jerab in 1915, where the British backed Ibn Saud was battling his Turkish backed rival, Ibn Rashid. After Shakespeare's death, another British agent, Colonel Thomas Edward Lawrence, gained international fame as Lawrence of Arabia for his role in the Arab revolt against Ottoman rule in the Middle East. Although his own self serving autobiography and the Hollywoodization of his story cemented in the popular imagination the idea that Lawrence was motivated solely by his concern for the Arabs and their independence. We do not work this thing for Faisal. No. For the English, then? For the Arabs. The Arabs. The documented history of Lawrence's actions and motivations tells a very different story. A memo on the politics of Mecca, penned by Lawrence for his intelligence handlers in 1916, reveals a more duplicitous British calculus for supporting certain factions of the Arab revolt. The Arabs are even less stable than the Turks. If properly handled, they would remain in a state of political mosaic. A tissue of small jealous principalities, incapable of cohesion, and yet always ready to combine against an outside force. The alternative to this seems to be control and colonization by a European power other than ourselves, which would inevitably come into conflict with the interests we already possess in the Near East. Later, in a report on the reconstruction of Arabia Lawrence penned for the British cabinet at the end of the war, He was even more explicit about the cynical divide and rule tactics at play in British support for the Arab revolt. When war broke out, an urgent need to divide Islam was added, and we became reconciled to seek for allies rather than subjects. We hoped by the creation of a ring of client states, themselves insisting on our patronage, to turn the present and future flank of any foreign powers with designs on the Three Rivers. 
Lawrence. Or is it Major Lawrence? Sir. Ah. Hi. Well, General, I will leave you. Major Lawrence Douglas has reports to make about my people and their weakness and the need to keep them weak in the British interest. Lawrence and the military and diplomatic personnel of the British Empire were indeed busy in the wake of World War I. In many ways, the aftermath of the war represented the zenith of that empire and the culmination of centuries of British manipulation in the Middle East. Driven by a mixture of political necessity and imperial hubris, the imperial planners had entered into secret agreements that redrew the map of the Middle East and once again affirmed the centuries-old accusation that perfidious Albion was not to be trusted. In 1916, the British and French entered into a pact to divide up the territory of the Ottoman Empire between themselves should they win the war. This treaty, known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement after the diplomats who negotiated the document, was a direct negation of the web of promises that the British had already made on the land, including the territorial promises they had made to Ali ibn Hussein, the Sharif of Mecca who led the Arab revolt against the Turks, the Treaty of Darin that had promised Ibn Saud British protection for his conquests in the Arabian Peninsula in return for his support in the war, and the Balfour Declaration promising the Zionists a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Although the revelation of the secret Sykes-Picot agreement by the Bolsheviks in 1917 proved a considerable embarrassment for the British and French, it did little to hinder their plans. The agreement provided a basis for the ultimate partitioning of the Ottoman Empire after the war, and the national borders that it helped to create have gone on to shape a century of strife and political conflict in the region. But it was not enough merely to draw the lines on the maps that would define the post-war Middle East. The British had to shape the development of the region in its own interest, creating entire nations in the process. In the Arabian Peninsula, they came to pin their hopes on Ibn Saud, whose sole focus on the conquest of Arabia, they calculated, would counteract the rise of a broader pan-Islamic movement that could challenge Britain's supremacy in the region. As historian Mark Curtis writes in his book, Secret Affairs, Britain's Collusion with Radical Islam, the British government of India had feared British sponsorship of an Arab caliph who would lead the entire Muslim world, and the effects this might have on Muslims in India, and had therefore favored Ibn Saud, whose pretensions were limited to Arabia. The subsidy from the British upon which Ibn Saud relied in his quest to unite the peninsula, which stood at £5,000 a month at the end of the war, was raised to £100,000 a year in 1922 by then-colonial secretary Winston Churchill. Churchill recognized that Saud's fighters, the Ikhwan, or Brotherhood of Hardliners and Adherents to the strict Wahhabi sect of Islam, were austere, intolerant, well-armed, and bloodthirsty, and hold it as an article of duty, as well as of faith, to kill all who do not share their opinions and to make slaves of their wives and children. So why then did the British support Saud and his men? My admiration for Ibn Saud was deep, Churchill later confessed, because of his unfailing loyalty to us. That loyalty paid off well. The British were the first to formally recognize Ibn Saud's sovereignty over his newly conquered territory on the peninsula, and in return, Ibn Saud signed a treaty agreeing to stop his forces from attacking Britain's neighboring protectorates. In 1932, Ibn Saud became King Saud of the newly formed Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. But even the nation's new name was British. It was George Rendell, head of the British Foreign Office's Eastern Department, who suggested it. 
The British played similar games throughout the region, arming, funding, and encouraging those who would work with them, including violent Islamic radicals, and undermining any potential challengers to British dominance. In Palestine, the British pardoned Amin al-Husseini, who had been sentenced to 10 years in prison for his involvement in the 1920 Jerusalem riots, and appointed him the Grand Mufti of Palestine, a title invented by the British, on condition that he cooperate with the British authorities. In Egypt, which became a British protectorate after World War I, the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood, an Islamist mass movement founded by Hassan al-Banna, was at times an explicit threat to the British military presence in the country. Nevertheless, its position as an alternative to both secular nationalism and communism, which Britain regarded as growing threats to its influence in the region, meant that the British were prepared to work with the Brotherhood against their common enemies, even covertly financing the group in 1942. In Iraq, the British, concerned at unrest in their Mesopotamian mandate, aided Prince Faisal in becoming Faisal I, King of Iraq. Faisal, recommended by T.E. Lawrence, guided, at his own request, by British advisors, and traveling at British expense, won a British-backed plebiscite to become the Iraqi king in 1921. The extent of British influence over the region during the post-war period was, in retrospect, staggering. But the number of machinations, manipulations, and shifting alliances that were required to keep this system of mandates, protectorates, and puppet governments going was a sign that the British were not all-powerful. On the contrary, their influence, and indeed, their empire itself, was waning, soon to be replaced by the new rising world superpower, the United States. The U.S. did not even wait until the end of the Second World War and the dawn of Pax Americana to begin its own diplomacy with the Muslims in the region. An American destroyer comes alongside a cruiser in Great Bitter Lake on the Suez Canal in Egypt. It brings Ibn Saud, king of the five million people of Saudi Arabia, to a conference with President Roosevelt stopping off here on his return from the Crimea conference. The destroyer has been decked out with rare carpets for the monarch. This 800-mile trip marks the first time that King Ibn Saud has ever left his native land. President Franklin Roosevelt's meeting with King Ibn Saud aboard the USS Quincy on Egypt's Great Bitter Lake in February 1945 was no ordinary exchange of diplomatic pleasantries. King Saud's first foreign trip involved a number of unusual requests and special arrangements. The Saudis insisted on bringing a contingent of 48 men, even though the Americans had said they could accommodate only 10. They insisted on sleeping in tents pitched on the ship's deck, rather than in the cabins provided. They insisted on bringing their own sheep, as the king believed that good Muslims eat only freshly slaughtered animals. But, irregularities aside, the meeting was momentous. Firstly, it demonstrated the importance of the Saudi-U.S. relationship at a time when much of the world knew little and cared less about the happenings on the Arabian Peninsula. Secondly, it established the terms of that relationship, namely, a U.S. guarantee of military defense of Saudi Arabia, including Roosevelt's promise to do nothing to assist the Jews against the Arabs, in return for Saudi concessions, including allowance for U.S. airfields and flyover routes across the kingdom, and access to Darhan where the California Arabian Standard Oil Corporation, which later became Aramco, had drilled the first commercially viable oil well in the country just seven years earlier. And thirdly, it signaled the dawn of a new era. 
No longer was the British Empire the primary foreign power driving events in the region. From now on, one of the key foreign policy considerations of the Muslim world was the U.S. and its enormous military and financial resources. This changeover in world order was not instantaneous. For some time after the end of World War II, the U.S. and British collaborated on operations that furthered their mutual interests in the region. These interests included opposing the rising threat of secular nationalist governments that, unlike the House of Saud and other Western-backed monarchies in the Middle East, were less pliable to bribes and more interested in nationalizing their country's resources. In March 1951, the Iranian parliament voted to nationalize the Anglo-Iranian oil company, the British oil giant that struck oil near the Persian Gulf in 1908, and offered the premiership of the government to Mohammad Mossadegh, an outspoken secular nationalist. Immediately after taking office, Mossadegh affected the nationalization, stating, Our long years of negotiations with foreign countries have yielded no results this far. With the oil revenues, we could meet our entire budget and combat poverty, disease, and backwardness among our people. Another important consideration is that by the elimination of the power of the British company, we would also eliminate corruption and intrigue, by means of which the internal affairs of our country have been influenced. Once this tutelage has ceased, Iran will have achieved its economic and political independence. The nationalization put Tehran on a collision course with London. But Britain knew that a military intervention was not possible without American approval, and, despite harsh economic sanctions on the country and a boycott of the newly nationalized oil industry that was joined by much of the Western world, they could not overthrow the Iranian government themselves. Instead, they had to turn to the U.S. Although the Truman administration was initially hesitant to become involved, that changed with the election of Dwight D. Eisenhower in the installation of the Dulles brothers, Allen and John Foster, as Director of Central Intelligence and Secretary of State, respectively. By June of 1953, the CIA was already adapting the British coup proposal into their own covert operation, dubbed Operation TP Ajax. An open secret in the world of intelligence, the CIA MI6 role in the overthrow of Mossadegh was officially denied by the US government for over half a century and is still unacknowledged by the British government to this day. Nevertheless, the CIA's own internal history of the operation, first revealed to the public in the year 2000, confirms the extent of the American and British role in the coup. They convinced the Shah of Iran to agree to the plan. They handpicked General Fazlullah Zahidi as Mossadegh's successor. They rolled out a propaganda campaign to portray Mossadegh, a devout adherent to democratic nationalism who rigorously excluded the nation's Communist Party from his government, as a communist sympathizer who would steer Iran into the arms of the Soviets. They spent hundreds of thousands of dollars bribing journalists, clerics, and even Iranian parliament members themselves to go along with the plot. And they used a network of agents and suitcases full of money to incite riots and protests across the country. In the end, the operation was a success. Mossadegh was driven from power, General Zahidi took his place, the Western-backed Shah ruled the country with the iron fist of his feared secret police for the next 25 years, and a new agreement on sales of Iranian oil was reached. This time, though, the Anglo-Iranian oil company, now rebranded as British Petroleum, would not have a monopoly on the country's lucrative oil reserves. An international consortium was put together to share in the profits, with American companies Chevron and Standard Oil cut into the deal. But the eclipse of the old British Empire by the new American superpower became most obvious in Egypt during the Suez Crisis of 1956. Lying on the key spice and trade routes linking Europe and Asia, 
the importance of Egypt to the British Empire went back centuries. It was the British Navy under Nelson and the British Army under General Ralph Abercrombie that drove Napoleon out of the country during the French campaign there at the turn of the 19th century. But it was the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869 that cemented Egypt's geopolitical importance for the British Empire. The Suez Canal, linking the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea and drastically reducing sailing distances from Asia to Europe, was technically the property of the Egyptians, but the project had been spearheaded by the French, and the concessionary company that operated the canal had been largely financed by French shareholders. An economic crisis in 1875, however, forced the Egyptian governor to sell his own shares to the British. As Parliament was not in session at the time of the sale, British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli had to turn to his close personal friend, Lionel de Rothschild, for the £4 million required to purchase the shares. After the British conquest of Egypt in 1882, an international agreement was signed declaring the canal a neutral zone under the protection of the British, whose troops were now installed in the country. This precarious balance of power lasted in various permutations for over 70 years, first under Britain's so-called veiled protectorate of Egypt in the decades leading up to World War I, then in a formal British occupation of the country during World War I and its aftermath, and then under Britain's unilateral declaration of Egyptian independence in 1922, which stipulated that the British would retain power over Egypt's defense and foreign policy. Britain's de facto control over the country was one of the grievances that gave rise to the Free Officers Movement, a cadre of Egyptian nationalists in the ranks of the Egyptian armed forces who toppled King Farouk and took over the government in the Egyptian Revolution of 1952. One of the movement's leaders, Gamal Abdel Nasser Hussein, became president of Egypt in 1954 and began to implement a series of nationalist, anti-imperialist measures that, like Mossadegh, put him at odds with the British forces in his country. These measures culminated with Nasser's nationalization of the Suez Canal on July 26, 1956. The Suez Crisis led to a joint British-French-Israeli invasion of the country, but in this case, the US under Eisenhower declined to back the invasion. Instead, Eisenhower, still believing that diplomacy and pressure could turn Nasser from the Soviet orbit and help America leverage its influence over the Arab world, joined the USSR in forcing an end to the invasion. The crisis marked a definitive turning point. The age of the British Empire was over. The age of the American superpower had begun. From now on, American military and financial power would be the determining factor in the Muslim world, and indeed the world in general. But the Americans had learned well from their British predecessors. The same tactics of strategic and shifting alliances, double dealings, and covert operations that the British had used to maintain their influence for centuries would now be deployed by the Americans to leverage their own power. They applied these lessons in Iran, where they supported the Shah's brutal dictatorship even as they maintained a secret communication channel with exiled religious leader Ayatollah Khamenei. They applied these lessons in Indonesia, where the U.S. at various times supported the Islamic factions in their rebellion against the Sukarno government, the Sukarno government itself, and, eventually, Suharto, who slaughtered over half a million people on his U.S.-backed rise to power. They applied these lessons in the Sinai Peninsula, where, as declassified documents now show, U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger helped engineer the Yom Kippur War so that the Arabs would conclude the only way to peace was through us, and the Israelis would conclude that they had to depend on us to win, and couldn't win if we were too recalcitrant. And they applied these lessons in Saudi Arabia, 
where Treasury Secretary William Simon helped enshrine the U.S. dollar's central role in global geopolitics and saved the U.S. from the 1973 oil crisis by negotiating the petrodollar system. A covert deal with the House of Saud to purchase Saudi oil and sell them weapons and equipment in return for a Saudi pledge to finance American debt by investing their oil revenue in U.S. treasuries. This era of American-led intrigue and double-dealing would culminate in one of the most important years for the Muslim world in the modern era, 1979. That was the year of the Iranian Revolution, when the American and British overthrow of Mossadegh in 1953 would come home to roost in the overthrow of the Western-backed Shah and the first major victory for the forces of political Islam in the creation of the Islamic Republic of Iran. That was the year of the seizure of the Grand Mosque in Mecca, when Islamic hardliners shocked the Muslim world by storming the holiest mosque in Islam and, during a dramatic two-week standoff, calling for the overthrow of the House of Saud and the end of its attempts at westernization. That was the year Egyptian President Anwar Sadat signed a peace treaty with Israel, normalizing relations between the two countries and leading to Sadat's assassination by members of Egyptian Islamic Jihad just two years later. And that was also the year that developments in Afghanistan put in motion a chain of events that would lead to the creation of the group we now know as Al-Qaeda. Soviet troops fought pitched battles in the streets of Kabul. Some say that Soviet forces now are in complete control of all major towns and highways. By all accounts, the Soviet takeover was meticulously planned and skillfully executed. On Christmas Eve 1979, Soviet troops began an invasion of Afghanistan. Initially, this was portrayed to the American public as a spontaneous act of aggression, the opening salvo in a new campaign by the Russians to conquer the region and upset the world order. 50,000 heavily armed Soviet troops have crossed the border and are now dispersed throughout Afghanistan, attempting to conquer the fiercely independent Muslim people of that country. If the Soviets are encouraged in this invasion by eventual success, and if they maintain their dominance over Afghanistan, and then extend their control to adjacent countries, the stable, strategic, and peaceful balance of the entire world will be changed. As historians with access to USSR document archives now know, the Soviet leadership was extremely reluctant to become entangled in Afghanistan. Well aware of the country's reputation as a graveyard of empires, Soviet politicians and military leaders knew that any attempt to bring Afghanistan under military and political control would be extremely difficult. Instead, the invasion was the end result of a series of events that threatened to plunge Afghanistan and the surrounding region into chaos. Starting in the wake of World War II, the urban, cosmopolitan political elite of the rural and agrarian nation of Afghanistan began a series of reforms and development projects that, they hoped, would bring their country into the modern era. Seeking assistance in this task, these leaders turned to the USSR, who, in addition to providing $100 million in low-interest credit to finance the projects, also welcomed members of the country's political and military elite for training at Soviet institutions. In turn, these young Afghan elites brought communism back to their country. 
The Afghan communists supported a bloodless coup in Kabul in 1973, overthrowing the king and instituting a one-party state whose government included representation by the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, a pro-Soviet, Marxist-Leninist party that boasted ties to the Afghan National Army. But the PDPA, frustrated by a perceived lack of progress toward communist goals on the part of this new government, precipitated another coup in 1978. This new communist government, led by Nur Muhammad Turaki, presided over a period of dramatic reform. Land reform sought to limit how much land a family could own. Social reforms abolished Sharia law, began education of women, and sought to end forced marriages and other traditional practices. And political dissidents were rounded up and resistant villagers massacred. Violently opposed both by the Islamic fundamentalists and conservatives in the country, as well as opposing factions within his own party, Taraki was overthrown in September of 1979 and killed the following month. Taraki's successor and one-time protege, Hafizullah Amin, led an even shorter and more turbulent government. Taking over the presidency in September, Amin, who, the Russians feared, was seeking to improve Afghanistan's relations with the United States, was deposed when Soviet forces entered the country and assassinated him on December 27, 1979. The official history written by the CIA, echoed by the U.S. State Department, and propounded in Hollywood productions, maintains that the U.S. response to the events in Afghanistan, a response that would go on to include billions of dollars in arms, funds, and training for the Islamic resistance to the Soviet forces, began after the Soviet invasion in 1979. The defeat and breakup of the Soviet Empire, culminating in the crumbling of the Berlin Wall, is one of the great events of world history. There were many heroes in this battle, but to Charlie Wilson must go this special recognition. Just 13 years ago, the Soviet army appeared to be invincible. But Charlie, undeterred, engineered a lethal body blow that weakened the communist empire. Without Charlie, history would be hugely and sadly different. And so, for the first time, a civilian is being given our highest recognition, that of honored colleague, ladies and gentlemen of the clandestine services, Congressman Charles Wilson. But this, too, is a lie. In reality, the covert operation to aid the Mujahideen freedom fighters did not begin after the Soviets invaded, and it was not the work of Charlie Wilson. As former CIA director Robert Gates revealed in his 1996 autobiography, assistance to the Afghan Mujahideen did not start after the Soviet invasion, but six months before, in July 1979, with President Jimmy Carter signing off on a covert operation to assist and fund the resistance forces in Afghanistan. This was done in the full knowledge that these forces might antagonize and draw the Soviets into the country, which is precisely what a certain faction of the Carter White House, known as the Bleeders for their propensity to bleed the Soviet Union through an engaged guerrilla conflict like the U.S. had experienced in Vietnam, wanted to achieve. This was confirmed two years later by Zbigniew Brzezinski, Carter's national security advisor, in a 1998 interview. According to the official version of history, CIA aid to the Mujahideen began during 1980, that is to say, after the Soviet army invaded Afghanistan on December 24, 1979. But the reality, closely guarded until now, is completely otherwise. 
Indeed, it was July 3, 1979, that President Carter signed the first directive for secret aid to the opponents of the pro-Soviet regime in Kabul. And that very day, I wrote a note to the president in which I explained to him that, in my opinion, this aid was going to induce a Soviet military intervention. The program that Carter signed off on, dubbed Operation Cyclone and billed as the largest covert operation in history, continued and expanded throughout the 1980s leading to the rise of the Taliban and the encouragement of what Brzezinski called in that same interview, some agitated Muslims. U.S. National Security Advisor Brzezinski flew to Pakistan to set about rallying resistance. He wanted to arm the Mujahideen without revealing America's role. On the Afghan border near the Khyber Pass, he urged the soldiers of God to redouble their efforts. We know of their deep belief in God, and we are confident that their struggle will succeed. That land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day, because your fight will prevail, and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again, because your cause is right, and God is on your side. The purpose of coordinating with the Pakistanis would be to make the Soviets bleed for as much and as long as is possible. News of the struggle began to spread throughout the Arab world, and soon the stories of the brave Mujahideen fighting the communist infidels became a rallying cry for jihad. The Afghan resistance had made Peshawar, just over the border in Pakistan, their headquarters, and it was there that visitors from around the Muslim world heard firsthand the tales from the battles against the Soviets and saw for themselves the squalor of the refugees who had been forced from their homes by the Russian invaders. One such visitor was Abdullah Azam, a passionate young Palestinian whose militant activism had cost him his job as a lecturer at King Abdulaziz University in Jeddah and had prompted him to take a position in Islamabad so he could be closer to the Afghan jihad. But this was still not close enough and he resigned his position to dedicate himself full-time to the Afghan cause. He spent time in the refugee camps and Mujahideen base at Peshawar, issued a fatwa arguing that Muslims had a duty to wage jihad in Afghanistan, and made frequent trips to Jeddah, where he recruited young Muslims for the cause. While in Jeddah, he stayed at the guest flat of a rich young Saudi named Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden was the 17th of 54 children of Mohammed bin Awad bin Laden, an itinerant laborer from Yemen who had worked his way up in the Saudi construction business to become one of the wealthiest non-royals in the Saudi kingdom. Mohammed bin Laden's business, today known as the Bin Laden Group Global Holding Company and comprising a sprawling, multi-billion dollar multinational conglomerate involved in some of the largest construction projects in the world, started from humble beginnings. After arriving in Jeddah from his native Yemen in 1930, Mohammed bin Laden took a job as a dock worker, then as a bricklayer for Aramco during the country's first oil boom. When Aramco sought to subcontract some of the construction work it had undertaken for the Saudi government, bin Laden used the opportunity to grow his own construction firm. His exacting building standards, combined with his energy, his honesty, and his willingness to work shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with his men, earned Mohammed bin Laden a reputation as a craftsman and a teacher, and brought him to the attention of King Ibn Saud's finance minister. The aging King Saud, by now largely confined to a wheelchair, gave bin Laden the chance to renovate his palace in Jeddah so that his car could be driven by ramp directly to his second-floor bedroom. Impressed with bin Laden's work, 
and Bin Laden's gesture of personally driving the king's car up the newly installed ramp to make sure it would hold the weight, the king awarded him with a number of increasingly important projects and even appointed him as an honorary minister of public works. Bin Laden's business, later rebranded as the Saudi Bin Laden Group, would go on to construct most of the kingdom's roads, renovate the Prophet's mosque at Medina, and even renovate the Grand Mosque in Mecca itself. Although Mohammed bin Laden's fortune was split between dozens of heirs, and although Osama's father divorced his mother shortly after he was born, the younger bin Laden was still born into a life of luxury that few in the kingdom outside the royal family would ever know. Osama bin Laden's share of the family fortune has been estimated at $30 million, and it was expected that he would, like many of his brothers, take up the family business. He studied economics and business administration at King Abdulaziz University, where he met and was influenced by Abdullah Azam, who was by then already known for his credo, jihad and the rifle alone, no negotiations, no conferences, and no dialogues. Accounts of when and how Osama bin Laden first ended up in Afghanistan differ. According to Osama himself, speaking to Robert Fisk in his first interview for the Western Press in 1993, when the invasion of Afghanistan started, I was enraged and went there at once. I arrived within days before the end of 1979. Others contend that Osama had never heard of Afghanistan before the Soviet invasion, and that he didn't set foot in the country itself until 1984. Whatever the case, by the mid-1980s, bin Laden was well known as one of the key fundraisers for the Afghan cause in the Arab world, using his family connections to gather donations from rich Saudis and delivering them to Pakistan to assist the fighters in the field. In 1984, Osama and Azam co-founded Maktab al-Kidamat, or the Office of Services, which the U.S. government would later identify as the precursor organization to al-Qaeda. The group aimed to recruit the foreign fighters that were taking up Azam's call to join the jihad in Afghanistan, with bin Laden providing money through his fundraising connections and with direct contributions. Initially little more than a guesthouse in Peshawar, where foreign recruits for the Afghan war could stop on their way to the front, the operation quickly expanded as money poured in and more fighters began to arrive. Soon it caught the attention of other figures in the Afghan war, including Gulbuddin Hekmadiyar, a brutal Afghan warlord supported by the U.S. to the tune of $600 million who was known for killing more Afghans than Soviets, and Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri, the head of Egyptian Islamic Jihad who would go on to become Osama bin Laden's right-hand man. The New Yorker has called Zawahiri the man behind bin Laden. Saeed Salim Shahzad, a Pakistani journalist with access to senior al-Qaeda commanders, has argued it was Zawahiri, not the figurehead bin Laden, who formulated the organization's ideological line and devised operational plans. Born in a suburb of Cairo in 1951 to a distinguished middle-class family, Zawahiri went on to study medicine at Cairo University, eventually earning a master's degree in surgery and serving three years as a surgeon in the Egyptian army before establishing his own clinic. He wore Western dress, avoided the radical Islamist activism sweeping campus in his university days, and, according to one Westerner who met him in the mid-1970s, didn't talk or act like a traditional Muslim. But, we are asked to believe, this was all a front— in fact, according to the authors of the officially sanctioned history of Al-Qaeda, Zawahiri was a lifelong radical who had joined the Muslim Brotherhood in 1965 at the tender young age of 14, and was set on his path toward violent jihad the next year, after the execution of the Brotherhood's then-leader, Saeed Qutb. Qutb was famous for his role in inspiring a generation of radical Muslims, 
including Azam, Osama, and Zawahiri, to take up violent jihad against the West and the forces of modernity in the creation of a new caliphate. Less remembered is Qutb's assertion that, during the 1960s, when Saudi King Faisal was openly conspiring with CIA and Aramco to stir up anti-socialist Muslim groups and undermine pan-Arabism and Arab nationalism, America made Islam. The then 15-year-old Zawahiri, we are told, responded to Qutb's execution by helping to form an underground militant cell dedicated to replacing the secular Egyptian government with an Islamic one. By the late 1970s, a number of these cells had merged into a larger militant organization, Egyptian Islamic Jihad, which, incensed by President Anwar Sadat's signing of a peace treaty with Israel, assassinated him during a military parade on October 6, 1981. Zawahiri was one of over 300 militants rounded up in the wake of the assassination and, having the best command of English among the defendants, became their spokesman for the international press. For the whole world, this is our world by Dr. Ayman Zawahiri. Now, we want to speak to the whole world. Who are we? Who are we? Why did they bring us here? And what we want to say? About the first question, we are Muslims. We are Muslims who believed in their religion, in its broad meaning, as both an ideology and practice. We believed in our religion, both as an ideology and practice. And hence, we tried our best to establish this Islamic state and Islamic society. Before being arrested, Zawahiri had already spent time in Peshawar, seeing firsthand the squalor of the refugee camps, and even crossing the border into Afghanistan to witness the fighting itself. After his release from prison in Egypt in 1984, Zawahiri made his way to Jeddah, and then back to Peshawar. Thus, by the mid-1980s, all of the main characters that were associated with the rise of modern Islamic terror and the founding of Al-Qaeda, Azam, Osama, Zawahiri, and their early associates, were now directly involved in the war in Afghanistan. They were not a single, cohesive group. Azam and Zawahiri were rivals for Osama's funds and attention, with Zawahiri even spreading rumors among the Mujahideen that Azam worked for the Americans. But together, they formed the backbone of what would come to be called the Afghan Arabs, an inaccurate term for all of the foreign jihadis who came to fight in Afghanistan, both Arab, including Saudis recruited by Osama and Egyptian members of Zawahiri's Islamic Jihad group, and non-Arab, Turks, Malays, and others from across the Muslim world. The Afghan Arabs were not the main fighting force in Afghanistan. In fact, some argue they were almost totally irrelevant to the fight. Making up only a small percentage of the total Mujahideen, they often got into quarrels with the Afghan fighters and were responsible for almost no significant victories in the struggle against the Soviets. But the story of these holy warriors who had answered the call of jihad spread throughout the Muslim world, helped in no small part by their own propensity for self-promotion. Azam launched Al-Jihad magazine to help publicize the Afghan Arabs' exploits and, with Osama's funding behind him, was able to make it an international concern. Distributed in America by the Islamic Center in Tucson, Arizona, the magazine sold thousands of copies per month in the U.S. alone. But for some time there has been debate about the nature of the U.S. role in fostering and funding the Afghan Arabs. While historians, scholars, and journalists agree that CIA funding for the Afghan Jihad, estimated to be well over $3 billion, did find its way to the Arab fighters, it has long been debated whether there was any direct contact between American intelligence and Osama bin Laden.
In the officially sanctioned history of the Afghan-Soviet War, the Americans were aiding the people of Afghanistan, brave freedom fighters who were engaged in a heroic struggle against the evil Soviet empire. The fact that freedom is the strongest force in the world is daily demonstrated by the people of Afghan. Accordingly, I am dedicating on behalf of the American people the March 22nd launch of the Columbia to the people of Afghanistan. The support that the United States has been providing the resistance will be strengthened rather than diminished so that it can continue to fight effectively for freedom. A just struggle against foreign tyranny can count upon worldwide support, both political and material. On behalf of the American people, I salute Chairman Khalis, his delegation, and the people of Afghanistan themselves. You are a nation of heroes. Hard to believe, John. What's that, sir? Well, I hate to admit it, but the truth is, I think we're getting soft. Maybe just a little, sir. Just a little. This is the story propounded by the final report of the 9-11 Commission, which holds that the covert aid supplied for the operation by the United States went to Pakistan, who then distributed the funds and supplies directly to the Afghan fighters, not the Afghan Arabs. Saudi Arabia and the United States supplied billions of dollars worth of secret assistance to rebel groups in Afghanistan fighting the Soviet occupation. The 9-11 Commission explained in the section of its report dedicated to the rise of bin Laden and al-Qaeda. This assistance was funneled through Pakistan. The Pakistani Military Intelligence Service, Inter-Services Intelligence Directorate, or ISID, helped train the rebels and distribute the arms. But bin Laden and his comrades had their own sources of support and training, and they received little or no assistance from the United States. Here, the 9-11 Commission is in agreement with Zawahiri himself, who insisted in his 2001 book, Knights Under the Prophet's Banner, that the United States did not give one penny in aid to the Mujahideen. After all, he adds, if the Arab Afghans are the mercenaries of the United States who have now rebelled against it, why is the United States unable to buy them back now? Zawahiri's rhetorical question has not always been answered in the way he intended it. In fact, numerous sources over the years have pointed to just such direct contact between the U.S. and the Afghan Arabs, and even between the CIA and Osama bin Laden himself. There was Ted Gunderson, for example, a 27-year veteran of the FBI who claimed to have met bin Laden at the Hilton Hotel in Sherman Oaks, California in 1986. Osama, Gunderson says, was introduced under the name Tim Osman and was in the midst of a U.S. tour with a State Department handler looking to procure weapons and support for the Afghan Jihad. The only document that ever emerged to back this story up, however, was a crude, self-typed, single-page memo of unknown origin that only serves to throw an already dubious story into even further doubt. Or there was journalist Joseph Trento's claim in his 2006 book, Prelude to Terror, The Rogue CIA and the Legacy of America's Private Intelligence Network, that CIA money was actually funneled to MAK, since it was recruiting young Muslim men to come join the jihad in Afghanistan. That claim, however, comes from a former CIA officer who couldn't be identified because, at the time of the writing of this book, he was back in Afghanistan as a private contractor. Or there was Simon Reeve, who wrote The New Jackals, the first book on Al-Qaeda in 1998. 
In it, he states that U.S. agents armed bin Laden's men by letting him pay rock-bottom prices for basic weapons. This claim, too, sources to an anonymous former CIA official. In 2000, The Guardian reported on Bin Laden, the question facing the next U.S. president, stating flatly, In 1986, the CIA even helped Bin Laden build an underground camp at Coast, where he was to train recruits from across the Islamic world in the business of guerrilla warfare. No sources provided for the claim, however. In 2003, MSNBC senior correspondent Michael Moran wrote that Bin Laden, along with a small group of Islamic militants from Egypt, Pakistan, Lebanon, Syria, and Palestinian refugee camps all over the Middle East, became the reliable partners of the CIA in its war against Moscow. However, he conceded that it should be pointed out that the evidence of Bin Laden's connection to these activities is mostly classified. Supporters of the official story, however, make a valid point. Of all the things that the multimillionaire heir to the Bin Laden family fortune needed on his rise to international infamy, money was not one of them. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah. <laughs> we wanted to take a quick moment to break and kind of just address a few things and, you know, questions and, and make sure everybody knows that we will be taking questions from any chat. We'll try to keep an eye on them. Just post your questions in the chats wherever you are. Hopefully not the pirate YouTube stream on, on YouTube, but anywhere else. And, and we'll try to address those questions. The first thing that comes to my mind as my camera gets out of focus is the, just the overlap of, of the, the idea of how something I pointed out a lot, Osama bin Laden, Saddam Hussein, all these historical villains of the day were moments before allies, assets, even on the record of, of the very group that moments later called them the biggest threat in our lifetime. Or the Taliban's a good example, as you address in this documentary, that went both went, became the bad guy. Now they're back to being OK. And it, it, even the U.S. defending them against other countries today. It's ridiculous. I just think if they're true. good enough for Rambo, they're good enough for the United <laughs> States. Right. I know. It's yeah. No, it, it it truly is remarkable, and it gets even crazier when you get into the 21st century and the developments with regard to Al-Qaeda, which I know you know. I mean, I'm not giving spoilers here, but <laughs> we'll just leave it at that in part three when Al-Qaeda takes the turn and suddenly, are we on their side? Well, anyway, let's let's start arming and funding them. Yeah, uh, again, it is, it is absolutely gob, gobstopping to watch, except for... This demonstrates exactly what I was talking about earlier. We can only look at what we are being told to look at today. Never look at any of the historical background. Never think about what's coming next. Only be stuck in this moment in time with regards to the issues we're allowed to think about and never connect dots. So when you actually start to connect dots, it, it's actually, I mean, it's its ridiculous. It's childish when you see how ridiculous the, the actual story is. But you're never allowed to actually connect the dots. I just want people to notice a couple of things. One is I think it took something like 40 minutes before we even actually really get into and mention Osama bin Laden right. <laughs> in this documentary about Al-Qaeda because there's so much historical background. And then, yeah, the other part of this is as I'm rewatching this and, uh, uh, and going through it again, it, it strikes me again. <laughs> there are literally entire books worth of information that are being condensed down into a few sentences. Mm -hmm. And it, it's it's ridiculous to, to think about how much of this history, and it's kind of like, you know, it's the documentary dilemma. How are you going to tell this story? Well, you got to try to, okay, here's the background, and now let's get into the story. But 
my God, it's difficult to do this. I hope you can appreciate. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I like just I, shout out to that exact point. Like the first time I watched this when it first came out, you know, I'm really, you're realizing I'm like, man, this is almost over. And we're, you know, it's like, it, that's why it's the origin. Like there's so much history behind this. And it's so, I'm so glad that it went so deep because it really, it's, it's, it's most people don't have the time or even the F, the ability to, to reach that far. Or even as I'm watching it again, I'm like, man, that's some incredible source material, like finding their pictures. And you know, the, the, it's, it really does paint an obvious picture. And to your point, it's ridiculous. I mean, I don't understand how anybody honest can look at all of this and walk away thinking anything other than an obvious coordination between the government that's acts like they're fighting it. It's, it's staggering to me. And I want to bring it up at the end, but talk about the overlap to today and with the group, mm. the base, which yeah. is the definition of Al Qaeda, but the base is this group they're now planting and setting up in my opinion, in regard to Russia. And it's very interesting how it's all happening all over again. It's very, very interesting, but any other comments? Yeah, well, why why do something different when you can do the same thing? Yeah. Brock, I don't remember uh, this this one in particular. I remember that uh, I, I we uh, it was probably during my the summer break that we took last year that I'm like, oh, by the way, we're going to do a documentary on Al Qaeda. Um, I don't remember if I originally thought it was going to be one part and then we split it into three parts. I don't remember how that works. I believe like most of the documentaries we do, oh, it's just going to be an hour, hour and a half. We'll get it all, <laughs> we'll get it all put in there. And then all of a sudden, you, once you begin your research process and writing and narration and everything, you're like, oh, okay, this might be a little longer than one part that we can squeeze into one into one uh, one video. So it's just a little, a little bit. That's our general working modus operandi is I start out with this idea. Don't worry, it'll be nice and short and tight. And then it becomes <laughs> this sprawling six-hour documentary. Right. When all of a sudden Let me done. commend you, though. Uh, the Media Matrix series, you did keep that to an hour pretty much. So kudos to you, James. Hey, well, I, that's honestly because it was... It's so much work, so much work to get that 20 minutes of per episode. Uh, yeah. The documentary style is a lot of work, but we've got that workflow down. But then the media matrix thing that we just did was a whole different workflow. So anyway, if people have questions about that kind of thing, we're open to that as well. More right. questions, obviously, about the uh, the material. But uh, yeah, leave them in the chats. We'll uh, We'll come back to it at the end. Rock and roll. No. What bin Laden needed for his burgeoning terror group to thrive was not more money. It was protection. As he turned from anti-Soviet warrior to international terror mastermind, bin Laden needed officials to look the other way as his people moved across borders. He needed routine security procedures to be abandoned at key moments. He needed intelligence agencies to disconnect the dots and fail to act on information at their disposal. When members of his organization got caught, he needed strings to be pulled so his associates could continue their operation. And, as we shall see, this is precisely the type of protection that Osama bin Laden and his associates were to receive time and again in the coming decades. Regardless of direct Western intelligence involvement in the arming, funding, or training of Maktab al-Kidamat, the question soon became a moot point. As the Afghan war was drawing to its inevitable conclusion, and the Soviets prepared to march back to Moscow, Osama bin Laden was already planning a new group to consolidate his international network of Mujahideen and to take the jihad global. According to documents obtained from a March 2002 raid of the Sarajevo offices of Benevolence International Foundation, a not-for-profit humanitarian relief organization that was declared a financier of terrorism in the wake of 9-11, the original idea for the founding of Al-Qaeda was discussed in a meeting on August 11, 1988. In attendance at the meeting, Osama bin Laden, 
Mohammed Atef, an Egyptian engineer and member of Zawahiri's Egyptian Islamic Jihad, who would go on to become al-Qaeda's military commander, Jamal al-Fadl, a Sudanese militant recruited for the Afghan war from the MAK's U.S. headquarters in Brooklyn, and a dozen others. There are conflicting stories about the origin of the name al-Qaeda, which means the base in Arabic. Bin Laden claims that al-Qaeda was simply the name used for the Mujahideen training camps, and the name stayed. Others attribute it to Abdullah Azam, who published a brief article in Al-Jihad magazine in April 1988 entitled Al-Qaeda al-Suba, or The Solid Base, in which he wrote, For every invention there must be a vanguard to carry it forward and, while forcing its way into society, endure enormous expenses and costly sacrifices. There is no ideology, neither earthly nor heavenly, that does not require such a vanguard that gives everything it possesses in order to achieve victory for this ideology. It carries the flag all along the sheer endless and difficult path until it reaches its destination in the reality of life, since Allah has destined that it should make it and manifest itself. This vanguard constitutes the solid base, al-Qaeda al-Suba, for the expected society. In 2005, former British Foreign Secretary Robin Cook claimed that al-Qaeda was literally the database, that is, the computer file of the thousands of Mujahideen who were recruited and trained with help from the CIA to defeat the Russians. He did not, however, provide proof for this claim, evidence of the existence of such a database itself, or an explanation of how he knew this information. The founding document itself mentions Al-Qaeda al-Askaria, the military base, explaining that the mentioned Al-Qaeda is basically an organized Islamic faction. Its goal will be to lift the word of God, to make his religion victorious. It lists the requirements to enter Al-Qaeda. Members of the open duration, listening and obedient, good manners, referred from a trusted side, obeying statutes and instructions of Al-Qaeda, these are from the rules of the work. It gives the pledge for new members. The pledge of God and his covenant is upon me, to listen and obey the superiors who are doing this work in energy, early rising, difficulty and easiness, and for his superiority upon us, so that the word of God will be the highest, and his religion victorious. And it ends by noting that there were 30 brothers in Al-Qaeda, meeting the requirements, and thank God. The meeting was noted by no one. In the larger scheme of things, it meant nothing. A ragtag band of 30 fighters, even if that ragtag band was led and financed by a Saudi millionaire, could accomplish very little on their own and in the wake of the seismic forces taking place in Afghanistan at the time, it did not even register as a blip on the radar of anyone in the region. But the assistance and protection that would help steward this group of jihadi miscreants into a brand name for international terror was already in effect. The early glimmers of this protection could be seen in Maktab al-Kidamat's efforts to recruit and train Mujahideen for the Afghan jihad in the U.S. Starting in Tucson, Arizona, MAK would go on to open 30 branches in cities across the U.S., including their most important location, the Al-Kifa Refugee Center, based out of Brooklyn's Farouk Mosque. The CIA's role in aiding MAK and Al-Kifa in their recruitment efforts has been an acknowledged fact for decades. In 2001, Newsweek called the center a dreary inner-city building that doubled as a recruiting post for the CIA seeking to steer fresh troops to the Mujahideen. In 1995, New York Magazine explained, The highlight for the center's regulars were the inspirational Jihad lecture series featuring CIA-sponsored speakers. 
One week on Atlantic Avenue, it might be a CIA-trained Afghan rebel traveling on a CIA-issued visa. The next, it might be a clean-cut Arabic-speaking Green Beret who would lecture about the importance of being part of the Mujahideen. J. Michael Springman, a visa officer at the U.S. Consulate in Jeddah from 1987 to 1989, testified how his decisions to deny visas to enter the United States to clearly unqualified applicants were routinely overridden by CIA officers at the consulate as part of their effort to help Osama bin Laden's Mujahideen in Afghanistan. I was being pressured by the Consul General, J. Philip Frayers, uh, by a consular officer, I'm sorry, not a consular officer, a commercial officer, and various other people throughout the consulate. We need a visa for this guy. It wasn't a, a visa for my friend. It wasn't a visa for a prospective business contact. It was for somebody like the two Pakistanis who were going to a trade show in the United States. They couldn't name the trade show. They couldn't name the city in which it was being held. But a CIA case officer concealed in the commercial section demanded a visa for these people within the hour of my refusing them. And I said, no, they can't tell me where they're going. They can't tell me why they're going. The law is very clear. These are intending immigrants unless and until they can prove otherwise. And they haven't done it. Do you have some information that was not available to me when they applied? He said, no. I said, they're not going. He went to Justice Stevens, the chief of the consular section, and got a visa for these guys. And it wasn't until I was out of the Foreign Service, when my appointment had been terminated for unspecified reasons, that I learned from three good sources. Joe Trento, the journalist, uh, a fellow attached to a university in Washington, D.C., and a guy with expert knowledge on the Middle East who had worked for a government agency. They said, it's very simple. The CIA and its asset Osama bin Laden were recruiting terrorists for the Afghan war. They were sending them to the United States for training, for rewards, for whatever purpose, and then sending them on to Afghanistan. And most likely, the problems they had with the liquor at the consulate, uh, large amounts of it disappearing, it being sold at very high markups, uh, and so forth, was being used to fund this. In a 1994 debriefing of his experience at Jeddah, Springman cited Sheikh Abdel Rahman as one of the CIA operatives with terrorist ties who were being aided by this program. Omar Abdel Rahman, better known as the Blind Sheikh, was born in Egypt in 1938 and lost his eyesight at just 10 months old. Studying a Braille version of the Quran, Rahman was sent to an Islamic boarding school and, inspired by the writings of Said Qutb, earned a doctorate in Quranic interpretation from Al-Azhar University in Cairo. He made a name for himself among Islamic fundamentalists for his forceful denunciations of the secular government of Nasser, who imprisoned Rahman without charges for several months. It was Rahman who issued the fatwa that was used to justify the assassination of Sadat, and it was in prison, on trial for his part in the assassination, that Rahman met Zawahiri. After his release from prison, the blind sheikh made his way to join the jihad in Afghanistan, where, as even mainstream sources note, he is said to have established links with the Central Intelligence Agency. The CIA, it was later reported, had paid for Rahman to travel to Peshawar and preach to the Afghans about the necessity of unity to overthrow the Kabul regime. These CIA links served the blind sheikh well. As one of the most notorious Islamic radicals in the Middle East, 
The blind sheik was on a U.S. State Department terrorist watch list that should have barred him entry to America. Nevertheless, in May 1990, he obtained a tourist visa to enter the United States from a consul in the U.S. Embassy in Khartoum. When the visa was first reported to the public in December of that year, a spokesperson for the State Department insisted that the consul had made a mistake, explaining that they didn't follow the procedures and failed to check Rockman's name against the State Department watch list. It wasn't until July of 1993, five months after the bombing of the World Trade Center directed by Rockman and aided by an FBI informant, that the truth was revealed. Central Intelligence Agency officers reviewed all seven applications made by Sheikh Omar Abdelrahman to enter the United States between 1986 and 1990, and only once turned him down because of his connections to terrorism, reported the New York Times, adding that, While the practice is somewhat sensitive and not widely known, it is not unusual for a low-level CIA officer to be assigned a post as a consular official, as they had been in each of the seven cases. It was later reported that the visas had been a reward for Rockman's services to the CIA in Afghanistan. Incredibly, this was not the end of the string of lucky breaks that allowed Rockman, the leader of the first Islamic terror cell to operate on U.S. soil, to continue his operations unmolested. In November of 1990, his CIA-approved tourist visa was revoked, but because of a procedural error, immigration officials were not aware that he was in the country and had to begin an investigation before he could be deported. Despite all of this, Rockman was still able to obtain a green card for permanent residence in the United States in April of 1991. After leaving the country and returning in August of that year, immigration officials identified that he was on a watch list and began proceedings to rescind his residency status, but they allowed him to re-enter the United States anyway. His green card was revoked in March of 1992, but he was still allowed to remain in the country while he applied for political asylum and plotted the World Trade Center bombing out of the MAK-founded, CIA-connected, Al-Qaeda stronghold in Brooklyn, the Al-Kifa Refugee Center. But as remarkable as the Blind Sheikh's story is, it is not unique. Rockman was not the only person associated with Al-Qaeda's Al-Kifa Center who proved able to freely enter the U.S. despite being on a watch list. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the future leader of al-Qaeda, made at least three visits to the United States. Despite having been imprisoned in Egypt for three years after the assassination of Sadat, and despite his known role as the leader of Egyptian Islamic Jihad, Zawahiri was able to enter the U.S. and, using an alias and posing as a representative of the Kuwaiti Red Crescent Society, engage in fundraising for his terror group. His trip was made possible by one of his most important operatives, Ali Mohammed, who had arranged the trip and provided him with the fake passport he used to enter the country. It is in the story of Ali Mohammed, dubbed Al-Qaeda's triple agent, that the incredible ties between U.S. intelligence and Al-Qaeda are revealed. Indeed, the tale of Mohammed's unlikely career, described as the most tantalizing and complex story in the history of Al-Qaeda's war against America, is so utterly unbelievable that a Hollywood scriptwriter would reject it for being too implausible. The son of a career soldier in the Egyptian army, Mohammed attended the Cairo Military Academy and obtained two bachelor's degrees and a master's degree in psychology from the University of Alexandria. Mohammed followed in his father's footsteps, joining the Egyptian army and quickly rising to the rank of major. An intelligence officer in the Egyptian Special Forces, Mohammed was a member of the same unit that carried out the assassination of Sadat in 
but he was not in Egypt when it happened. He was training with the U.S. Green Berets at Fort Bragg on a foreign officer exchange program. The FBI would later allege that it was during this training course that Mohammed was first approached by the CIA, who sought to recruit him as a foreign asset. That same year, Mohammed joined Zawahiri's Egyptian Islamic Jihad and raised the suspicions of the Egyptian army, not just for his ties to the Sadat assassination unit, but his conspicuous acts of Islamic fundamentalism, including taking time for the five daily prayers and loudly proclaiming his Islamic beliefs to anyone who would listen. Discharged from the Egyptian army in 1984, Mohammed, at the behest of Zawahiri, landed a job as a counterterrorism security advisor for Egypt Air. Impressed by Mohammed's abilities, Zawahiri tasked him with a seemingly impossible challenge infiltrate an intelligence service of the U.S. government. Remarkably, according to the official history of Al-Qaeda propounded by the very intelligence services Mohammed was tasked with infiltrating, that was exactly what he did. According to that official story, in 1984 Mohammed turned up at the CIA station in Cairo, offering his services. The CIA took him up on the offer, sending him to Hamburg, Germany to infiltrate a Hezbollah-linked mosque there. Upon arriving in Hamburg, Mohammed immediately announced that he had been sent by the CIA. The agency, learning of the betrayal, officially cut their ties with him, putting Mohammed on a State Department watch list that should have prevented him from entering the U.S. But, as government sources later told the Boston Globe, he was able to enter the country in 1985 anyway with the help of clandestine CIA sponsorship. According to the report, Mohammed benefited from a little-known visa waiver program that allows the CIA and other security agencies to bring valuable agents into the country, bypassing the usual immigration formalities. What happened next defies all credulity. On his flight from Athens to New York, Mohammed sat next to Linda Lee Sanchez, a single medical technician from Santa Clara, California, 10 years his senior. After spending the flight in conversation, the two agreed to meet again, and six weeks later they were married at the Chapel of the Bells in Reno, Nevada. Now applying for U.S. citizenship, Mohammed enlisted in the U.S. Army in August 1986, completing basic training at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and receiving an Army Achievement Medal for his exemplary performance. Completing jump school and qualifying as an expert marksman on the M-16, Mohammed quickly reached the rank of E-4 and was then inexplicably posted to the Special Operations Command at Fort Bragg, where he had earlier trained as a foreign exchange officer. Working as a supply sergeant for a Green Beret unit, he was soon lecturing on the Middle East to students at the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center, the training center for U.S. Special Forces. Islam cannot uh, survive in an in area without political domination. Islam itself as a religion cannot. So if, if I live in, in one area, you, we have to establish an Islamic state because Islam without political domination cannot survive. Even his commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Anderson, was stunned by the incredibly unlikely rise through the ranks of this watchlisted Muslim radical. I think you or I would have a better chance of winning the Powerball lottery than an Egyptian major in the unit that assassinated Sadat would have of getting a visa, getting to California, getting into the army, and getting assigned to a special forces unit, Anderson later told the San Francisco Chronicle. That just doesn't happen. But it did. And the unbelievable story of Ali Mohammed did not stop there. In fact, it was only just beginning. In 1987, Mustafa Shalabi, the emir of the al-Qaeda-linked Al-Kifar Refugee Center in Brooklyn, 
transmitted a request from the Mujahideen in Afghanistan for Ali Muhammad to come and train rebel troops in the camps there. Muhammad requested a 30-day leave from the army and made his preparations to travel to Paris, and from there on to Afghanistan using forged documents provided to him by Mujahideen agents. Muhammad made no attempt to hide his plan, and Lieutenant Colonel Steve Neely, the JFK Special Warfare Center instructor who hired Muhammad as a lecturer, was so upset at the idea. A U.S. soldier heading to a war zone to engage in training and, inevitably, combat without the permission of the army that he sent a report up the chain of command informing his superior officers about Muhammad's plan. But he never heard back. Ali Muhammad went to Afghanistan, where he not only provided training to the Mujahideen, but, according to his own story, even fought and killed two Soviet Special Forces officers. When he returned to his duties at Fort Bragg after his 30-day leave, he even presented one of his mementos, a belt from one of the Soviet soldiers he had killed, to his commanding officer. A month after he left for Afghanistan, Ali Muhammad returns here, 11 kilograms lighter and brandishing a war trophy. And then he came back and uh, gave us a debriefing with uh, maps and even brought back this Russian Special Forces belt. He said that he'd killed the Russian Special Forces soldier. Colonel Anderson says he sent two separate reports to his superiors criticizing Ali Muhammad for his Afghan adventure. But he received no response, and Anderson says he did not have enough evidence to bring charges against Muhammad. So outrageous was Muhammad's behavior that his commanding officer came to believe that he was being sponsored by a U.S. intelligence agency. I assumed the CIA, he told the San Francisco Chronicle. Anderson was not alone in this belief. Back in California, Muhammad's friends also assumed his CIA ties. Everyone in the community knew he was working as a liaison between the CIA and the Afghan cause. Ali Zaki, a San Jose obstetrician who was close to Muhammad, told the Washington Post. CIA sponsorship would explain Muhammad's incredible ability to break army regulations at will with complete impunity. While serving in the U.S. Armed Forces... Muhammad spent his weekends traveling from Fort Bragg to Brooklyn, where he lectured at the Al-Kifa Refugee Center and began providing military training and stolen U.S. Special Forces documents to a cell of Islamic militants based there. Despite all of this, Muhammad received an honorable discharge from active duty in November 1989. Among the commendations he received, one for patriotism, valor, fidelity, and professional excellence. He remained a member of the U.S. Army Reserve as he returned to his wife in California and began the next leg of his career. As we shall see, this increasingly implausible story involved Muhammad becoming an FBI informant while simultaneously training and steering the terror cells that would be linked to the World Trade Center bombing, the U.S. Embassy bombings, and the other spectacular attacks in the 1990s that would make al-Qaeda synonymous with international terrorism, evading the justice system for years, and then disappearing off the face of the planet. By the time Muhammad left active duty at the end of 1989, the world order was beginning to shift. The Soviets had retreated from Afghanistan, and within two short years, the Soviet Union itself had ceased to exist. The Cold War was over, and the public was promised a new world of peace and tranquility. We stand tonight before a new world of hope and possibilities 
for our children, a world we could not have contemplated a few years ago. The challenge for us now is to engage these new states in sustaining the peace and building a more prosperous future. But this promised new world of hope never arrived. Instead, the world was about to be thrust into a new age of terror. And the public face of that terror, a young Saudi millionaire who was still being touted as an anti-Soviet warrior, had just cobbled together his band of Islamic militants, his Al-Qaeda base, in the training camps of Afghanistan. And, as we will see, as the world plunged into this new era of violence, the planners of the American Empire, like the planners of the British Empire before them, were more than willing to aid, protect, and use these radical Muslims to attain their own ends. Groups affiliated with Osama bin Laden to target the United States. There are four people confirmed We call this the terror of the tower. Well, just outstanding, guys. Just really outstanding. I mean, I just have to give you guys a bit, you know, such a shout out for the work there. I mean, it's it's watching it again, even, you know, for the third time. It's just it's just still catching little pieces that you're like, there's wow, a lot of info in there, isn't there? Yeah. So that's why I want to point people to uh, CorbettReport.com slash Al-Qaeda, A-L-Q-A-E-D-A, which is where you can find the complete hyperlinked transcript. Because I know there's a lot of info here and I'm imagining there's a new new pieces of this puzzle for anyone who's uh, dipping their toes into this. So as with everything I do, absolutely every single thing is linked, sourced right there. So you can go and follow it. And if you did, you'll note that the part one and part two transcript is up right now. That's 30,000 words. And I haven't counted how many hyperlinks there are yet. If Mm -hmm. somebody, some intrepid person in the crowd wants to do that, but (laughs) I'm going to say, conservatively hundreds if not thousands um by this point certainly by the time we get to part three it will be in the thousands so a a lot of reading for people to catch up on if they're interested in uh deep diving into this also just on one technical note i'll note that somebody in the comment section of corporatereport.com said they were getting video unavailable from the odyssey link um i don't know what that's about it was working for me so yeah odyssey has some issue like that here and there i hear that you know back and forth but the video is there for those hopefully they can watch the part they missed now it's definitely important cool Uh, just to add to what you were saying though the i find that to be you know your documentaries especially to watch it and then read through the transcript that i really find that's where you absorb much more of the information i mean it's just me i find reading i absorb more anyway but just i definitely hope you guys will read that um unless you guys have any more comments i mean we can do our comments first and or ask questions what do you guys prefer you want to jump into some questions from the chat while we what got here think, Rock? Yeah, let's take some questions from the chat. They've been sure. patiently waiting, so let's, let's do it. Yeah. I know, Brock, you had said you took some down from the different chats. Go in the Rockfin. I get I, when I let you guys know to save those questions, go ahead and post them now, and I'll, I'll scroll through some of the ones we want to respond to. Um, go ahead, Brock, if you want to start with one of the questions you found. Sure. Uh, first question comes from the esteemed Mr. Duke Booty. Um, <laughs> are, the three, are the three of you positive at all that the truth you are talking about here and in your respective shows will ultimately come out. And I guess by that, does it, you know, 
will it sort of be accepted in the sort of mm. mainstream zeitgeist? Mm. Right. You want to go first, Jim? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting, yeah, that's an interesting question because the way it's stated there, well, are we confident that the truth will come out? I, I guess the obvious answer to that is it is out. Right. I mean, this is here it is. Here it is in a documentary. But yeah, so the real question is, will it catch on? Will it mm. gain, gain general acceptance? And I guess I approach that like I approach all my work. I, I'm not responsible for the way other people accept or don't accept this information. Uh, I, if I didn't think that it at the very least could have an effect, I wouldn't be doing it, I suppose. Um, so I obviously I think that's a possibility, but it's by no means set in stone. All I can do is put it out in the best way that I can if people find value in it, and then hopefully they can spread that to others. And it is the it's the ripple effect, right? It's not going to be any one of us. It's going to be all of us connecting together mm-hmm. that's going to make a difference or not going to make a difference. And that's, I mean, I, I'm not, I, I, I'm certainly not decided one way or another. Yes, absolutely. This truth will will transform the world or it will not. I don't, I, I don't have a firm position on either one. I think it could go either way. And it really is up to people out there what they end up doing with this info. I definitely think that we're just in a different state of the of the world, of the reality of, you know, kind of like how I argue in regard to foreign policy, like we're at a post situation, basically where the idea of kinetic war, especially to these superpowers is just not, that's beyond them. Like we're in proxy war territory. You know, they're changing the paradigm. I think that's where we are today. And I, I feel like I've seen that more clearly than ever with COVID-19 is that, the idea, like the metric we need to think about on what it means when you're breaking through is not what it was before. It will never break through the corporate discussion, in my opinion. Never, mm. unless it's useful to some degree. That's just, call me a pessimist. That's I, what I you, well, I think you're speaking to an important point that I was I was trying to stress on uh, Propaganda Watch back mm. when that existed. <laughs> uh, same facts, opposite conclusions. At some point, these truths can and sometimes do come out and are talked about even in the mainstream. But they will always only be talked about from within the mainstream paradigm right. and with the mainstream spin. So that uh, at that time with Propaganda Watch, I was talking about uh, lockdowns and, you know, whether they're, look, they don't seem to be working and they seem to be killing people. And But then the, the people on the other side of that argument are saying, well, of course, because the areas that are hardest hit by the dreaded COVID scourge are the ones that lock down the hardest. So we would expect the most deaths there. You can do anything you want even with the exact same data and you can approach it from different perspectives and get a different point on it, which is why to a certain extent, uh, in a way, maybe this is the right time for this type of documentary specifically, because when you are in the, the shell hole, the crater blast of a nine 11 event, people are too psychologically traumatically damaged from it. They do not want to hear Oh, by the way, this is all fake and, you know, everything's staged. No, they don't want to hear that at that moment. Um, They cannot process it. Most people um, who are living through that trauma. But a decade, two decades removed, the the 9-11 bomb has been diffused in the minds of the public to a certain extent. People can now take a step back and look at it objectively. There are people growing up now who were little children when this happened and don't really have any particular association with it. It's not some sort of toxic thing that they don't want to think about. So to a certain extent, you know, 20 years after the fact is the prime time to be really introducing this to people who otherwise would have shoved it away Um, in the exact same way, you know, 10, 20 years from now, I know we, maybe we don't have that long, but at that point it will be 
relatively easy to tell people about. Oh, and that ridiculous scam that we lived through with the, the COVID thing and the oh, they were sh- shooting people up and, and everyone was worshiping like Pfizer and these big pharma companies. What was going on? Uh, it'll be easier to get that truth through a decade down the line. And as I say, I think the importance of doing this, even if well, that's not politically relevant anymore. I think it is still politically relevant. The whole LCIA story is still very much relevant. But even if it weren't relevant to the, what's happening today, it's still, it's the, it's the game plan. It's the template. And as you were talking about before, yeah, they're doing the same things. They're doing the same things over and over and over and over and over. Yeah, exactly. It, this isn't some remarkably new thing. And once you've diffused it and disarmed it and deconstructed it and taken a look at it from this perspective, I, I, I don't see how anyone's going to fall for that again, right? Mm-hmm. It, once once you've, I, I think that stumbling into this type of information is a one-way trip because you it's hard to go back the other way. And once you know, and you, oh, I see, I understand all about 9-11 and Al-Qaeda, but wow, now I'm super scared of whatever, the, the new terror group that they're talking about today. Of course not. Right, right. I mean, I, I think what I... What I... What stands out to me ultimately is that we've seen this many times. And I think today we are really seeing more than ever that the emotional manipulation is their go-to. Like you're describing, you know, in that, that moment where everyone's upset, like, or in the COVID, how dare you? People are dying. You know, it's this emotional ploy. And even if it's a real situation, you know, so what they do now is create that everywhere they can. So people just shut down the logic part, you know, absolutely. Um, Rock, what's your sense on that question? My sense is I actually when I edit these documentaries and, and productions, I don't go into it with the mindset of like, this is going to change everyone's mind in the world. I think that's very naive. I look at it from a very personal level. Um, I obviously I've shown some of my mates here and some of my friends and family here, the documentary and just listen to their response to it. And so far with the first two parts of the Aquata documentary, it's been, it has been incredibly eye opening for them. That there is the metric I base the success of the documentary on and the truth getting out to it um to be able to judge seven plus billion people's perspective yeah, on this yeah yeah know, yeah, yeah. Very, but very that's a good point and that's a good point that actually ties in with the whole media matrix point isn't it yeah. that we uh, ryan you were mentioning this in our uh, solutions watch uh, last week where you were talking about how we're hung up on these metrics of you know oh did this did this video go viral on this platform and how many viewers and you know how many thumbs up or whatever likes it gets we're we're being increasingly sucked into thinking of that mm-hmm. as what is the oh did it go viral no then okay well then it's useless and they're all manipulated That's, we know today anyway exactly and it's yeah do you trust you trust what youtube or any other platform is telling you the number of views are i mean i, right. I certainly don't so yeah we have to think about more about connecting with actual people we know and seeing the feedback from that that's something we can directly affect virality online whatever that means is an ephemera not what it used to mean, definitely. And this is the shout out to the pirate streams discussion, right? We're changing that paradigm or trying to, you know, where we don't need to be tapped into what they tell you defines it as good or not. You know, it's, it's about, as Brock said, it's about com- your community. Something I've said a long time, and then we'll take another question is, you know, if, if you can just change one person's mind, if you can reach one person that day, you did your job. I mean, that's, that's all it's really about. It's just doing it relentlessly to reach people one by one, you know? I awful. fully understand what you're saying there. I would just... I, I personally, I don't think it is your job to change anyone's mind. And I think that mindset, unfortunately, gets some people stuck in sort of hopelessness and despair. I didn't change mm-hmm. anyone's mind today. I haven't done my job. It is not our job to change other people's minds. Right. 
sure, if you if you have important truths that you think the world should know about, share them and let people know and don't be don't be shy about it. But what they do with that information is up to them. And I don't think we should start taking the responsibility for that onto ourselves. That's that's too much of a burden, I think. Yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point. I mean, it's impossible to, you know, it's not we do our best to get the information out there, let people do with it what they will. Definitely. Um, I'll jump over to Rockfin um, and see if we have any questions that have populated since uh, we let that go. Uh, somebody asked, do you think that Bin Laden is still alive? No, I personally don't. Um, do I think he died on, in May 2011? Um, it, you know what? I leave open the possibility, but mm, I, I, have no, I have no strong reason for believing that. Let's put it that way. So, um, But that was, interestingly, that was one of the things that I got to uh, trolled with <laughs> um, back in 2012-ish or 11 or 12. I, I wrote an article at the time, um, something like uh, uh, Osama bin Laden pronounced dead, dot, 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 for the ninth time. And I just <laughs> compiled a list of the number of times that people had said, oh, he's dead, or that you know, it was reported in Fox News, he was dead, and all of this. And and I said at the, in that article, my point was, look, uh, there's no particular reason to trust any of these previous reports, and we don't have any compelling evidence to for us to trust this particular report now. But of course, there were there were people who who took that as like, oh, so you think he's still alive? Well, no, I didn't say that. I'm not I'm not pronouncing on the ver veracity of any of these reports. Or you think he died in 2002? Like, no, I I don't know. That's the point. But I, we should base it on actual solid evidence. Absolutely. So. Uh, do I think he's still alive? Personally, I don't. Um, in whatever way he was retired, in what you know, whenever he was retired, I think the Osama bin Laden character was retired. But um, go back to my appearance on RT. Uh, I think the day that they announced his death, I was on RT, and um, they asked me something along those lines, and I just said uh, uh, this was a retirement party for, for by the CIA, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> and I, I don't think we'll be seeing this character anymore. And James, uh, perhaps. Uh... A little birdie tells me that perhaps this story, will, uh, this your answer will be fleshed out in greater detail in <laughs> part three. Maybe. Interesting. interesting. Maybe. <laughs> you know what it brings to mind is is I'm blanking. I on feel. His name. I'm sorry. It's just ridiculous. Right. I feel like oh, I don't want to give spoilers for people who don't know <laughs> history. <laughs> <laughs> I, it brings to mind though the idea of the I forget his name though the the um, the, the clean cut guy that that and the, the ridiculous story with Fort Bragg. As a, as a foreigner and then came back and went to the Port Bragg as, you know, really that guy hard. where he, yeah. I, my mindset with that point is he disappeared. And, you know, whether or not you're, you're useful to the CIA, at some point you end up no longer being mm -hmm. useful. And I think yeah. that, I think that's a common way that these things go. And we like to imagine. That's the, the thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. We need know? a little bit more nuance with these things. Like this person is a, a controlled agent and they're, or, or a, you know, an actor. It was, you know, Osama bin Laden was just an actor who was portraying this Muslim terrorist or something. There are all sorts of levels on which this can work, mm -hmm. including the level at which these people are toys that are being played with by intelligence agencies. And they may genuinely believe what they are saying and doing, but mm -hmm. they are being, you know, doors are being opened at, uh, at key times for them. Things are being allowed. Things happen. So there are many different levels on which this can take place. And for my money uh, of all of the craziness with regard to the Al-Qaeda story, and there are so much craziness. For me, the Ali Mohammed story is just that that's that's it. That's the thing that I, I, I never, ever, ever, ever hear anyone addressing 
with regard to the entire, like most, I, I even had people after we released part one saying, I've never heard of this Ali Muhammad guy. And these are people who have been in the truth movement for decades and have never heard about this part of the Al Qaeda story. That's, that says something. This is so utterly inexplicable from within the confines of the mainstream that it's just 100% ignored. Oh yeah, Al Qaeda had a triple agent who was a special forces operative and CIA asset and an FBI informer. And oh, by the way, pers- personal bodyguard bodyguard of Bin Laden. He was telling FBI agents about. Uh, oh yeah, I was in you know I, I was in Sudan helping uh, Bin Laden move to Afghanistan and stuff. And they were just like, oh yeah, okay. All this crazy part of the story, and most people have never even heard about it. Even people in the alternative media. It, it to me it really speaks to I mean at first when you see the story you're, you're thinking that this is uh, somebody being exploited to a degree or I mean it, it kind of evolves and you wonder where that really went like how is it possible that that could all happen from start to finish without the CIA doing everything for them and moving these pieces the whole time but again still speaks to the end point that you're expendable to them no matter what in my opinion yeah. so the moment that you're sure. a threat I think it's obvious to think what could have happened at the very least yeah. is my thoughts. And the question of what ultimately happened to Ali Muhammad is still an open one. He was uh, he was convicted and the sentencing was never made public if it ever took place. There's no record of it. There's no record of his prisoner ID number or where he might be being held in the system. There are two accounts, if I remember correctly, of him uh, being talked to post 9-11 in incarceration but no further details. And if I remember correctly, I'll, I'll look this up and we can talk about it again next week or the week after. But um, I believe there was uh, some sort of like change with regard to his case, something that was filed with regards to his now decades old case that was filed around the time that part one came out, actually. So there was something, but again, it's like secret, you know, they, they're, they're not releasing the details. So who knows what was changed with regard to Ali Muhammad's case, but something did. And James, uh, just to that point, in my uh, research for the for part one of the documentary, all I was able to find about that was an undated mugshot of Muhammad. So that's, you know, take that for what it's worth as well. Crazy. Just yeah. crazy. Uh, as I'm waiting for more questions to pop up, you guys have any others that you wanted to throw in that you saw in the chats? I'll, I'll take uh, a look at the pirate YouTube chat just, just because. Uh, sure. James, uh, for you, uh, this is from A Simple Channel. Um, what is the most difficult part when starting a documentary and how to do it and how do you deal with it? <laughs> Big question. I, I think I've gestured towards it already. It is the condensing down of mountains of information down into a coherent narrative that I'll be able to convey to people. And that's why after every documentary, I always go through my reading list and th- these are the things I consulted and if you're interested, you should go here because as the documentary maker, I know there is so much more under this little tip of the iceberg. There's this entire mountain of data that I can't possibly fit in. Um, like this documentary right now that we're watching could could easily be 10 hours. It could be 20 hours if I really went all out. It's not going to be because <laughs> that's ridiculous. Um, but there's just so much more material. So that really is that's that's the hardest part about getting started with this is, okay, how am I going to condense this down? And really finding sort of the narrative through line that connects this to this, to this, to this, and all of this makes this point. Once I have that in order, then it's kind of connect the dots and, and, you know, fill in the blanks, which in and of itself makes it sound easy. But (laughs) I, I, I hope people realize for every paragraph here, even paragraphs dealing with, 
things that I already know. And I've, yeah, okay. I remember that happened and that happened. And that guy said that, but then when you're actually writing it, I mean, you have to go and you have to find the source quote and you have to find, okay, so that sourced from here. And then you got to go through there and then, oh, well, actually that's from this book over here. And even the simplest thing can end up taking hours to hammer down. Um, so there's a lot of frustrations along the way, but I think the the primary one is just trying to take all the information and trying to put it down into a form that people will be able to understand and follow. And I, obviously I'm, I, I can't watch this anymore because Brock, we've been over this a million times watching it and going over every part of the edit and everything. Um, so I can't even see it anymore, you know, but um, I like to think that it's at least fairly understandable. I think, it's definitely something I would I would hope that people who are interested will go and read the transcript so they can get sort of get more out of it and, and go over the parts that they, they didn't pick up on the first time. But I think it's fairly understandable as a narrative overall, which if that is the case, then I will say I've done my job. Absolutely. Just from my perspective, I think it's very, it's easy. I think that's the best part about it is that it makes it easily digestible for someone that may, if you know nothing about this story, you watch this documentary and you, you're, you, you're, you're going to stand back and you'll be blown away by it. Like how in the world do I not even know this stuff? How's nobody talked about it? It's really transparent and clear. And I, I, I mean, I think that's the whole important part about this is it is that obvious. It just needs people need to see it. You know, that's kind of what to that first question, you know, um, I've got a question here from, uh, so bogus says is was al-qaeda an actual ideological movement with leaders genuinely trying to accomplish political change or was leadership all spooks working in an agenda that's kind of you know one of the kind of a central point about all this right it's, yeah you know, it really is isn't it um so i think um for part three uh brock we were watching a clip of uh george w recently um, it was right after 9-11. It might have been the September 20th speech. Anyway, right after 9-11, he was saying that it was uh, a, a group of loosely affiliated terror organizations known as Al-Qaeda or something, which I, I remarked at the time as we were watching it. I'm like, well, actually, that's probably one of the fairest assessments because that's, that, that is ultimately... Um, people might remember way back in the day, I, uh, 2009, I had a documentary series that I started, but never finished called Al-Qaeda doesn't exist. <laughs> and if I had ever gotten around to finishing it, well, actually, this documentary is pretty much the, uh, the fulfillment of that decade plus <laughs> old promise, essentially. But th that's kind of the underlying point here is not that Al-Qaeda doesn't exist at all. I mean, of course, that that doesn't make sense. And it's not that it's simply a bunch of actors and it's just a front and it's all just a fictitious creation. It's that the idea that there is a cohesive, coherent organization, a group that is led by this man and he or issues orders and then his troops go out and, you know, do those things. That was never even actually the main, the, the sort of the, the mainline understanding of what Al, Al Qaeda supposedly was. It's a loose connection of people who kind of know each other and sometimes broadly kind of connect on certain issues. So when you get into the real deep weeds of the mainline story of this, there's all sorts of fractures and divisions and different people coming from different places. And uh, uh, Zawahiri was Egyptian. So there was Egyptian Islamic Jihad that kind of got folded into Osama bin Laden's organization, which was in Afghanistan and centered more around sort of the uh, Arabs, Saudi Arabia. Um, you get people like Zarqawi coming in, um, he's Jordanian, so he brings Jordanian militants into the mix. And there's these different groups that have different agendas and they're, they're doing different things. And all of them have their suspicious backgrounds and 
points at which you could point to, well, there may have been some infiltration into the group at that point. Um, but again, that's not to say there is no such thing as radical Muslim extremists who will commit terror. I think there are. It's just, I think certain passages are left open. So I, I don't know if that answers the question, but my sense is that Al-Qaeda is not some sort of singular organization. It was always just sort of this amorphous grouping of people who kind of were connected and, as usual, follow the money. And in the mainline version of the story, it's like, oh, Osama bin Laden was a rich boy from a rich family. So that's how that explains it all, which, of course, it ultimately doesn't. But at any rate, if there's any sort of you know central point, it's where where's the money coming from? And at least in the mainline story, well, it's coming from bin Laden. So he must be the, the head of this organization. Yeah, I think history has shown that it's rarely that simple, that it's just this one entity or one group. But one thing I always see in it, and I think this has proved out from comments from Saudi leadership and many number of things that, you know, that at the from the top, it's it's usually where the control measure is. And there are genuine people that buy into it. I mean, any psyop you look at that people believe in what's actually happening and it's being led by people that don't care one way or the other, they'd like to use your belief in those things. And then there are people involved that don't care. You know, there's all, you know, different smattering of people. My thought is how obviously we can see the same kind of model being used, as we mentioned before, like Ukraine stands out in incredibly obvious ways where the same point in, this, in the documentary makes where they're arguing, these are Ukrainian freedom fighters and most of them are coming from other places in the world. And then you ask, are, they, are there even actually real Ukrainians in here fighting this battle? You know, we, we can see the history shows you that's a good question to ask, you know, and, and yeah. all the overlaps yeah. of building the fascist entity the Azov movement, which ties right back to the Air, uh, Project Aerodynamic, 1948, the CIA. You know, it's the same thing in, 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 for, for the Mojadeen and, and the whole discussion, you know. Exactly the, right. In fact, let's point to a specific example of that. So just like the Taliban, for example, they're the good guys. Yay, we're fighting for them. And then they're the bad guys. And right. then and then it's like, OK, leave the country. They'll take over. Whatever. Who cares? Right. We'll work with them again. Um that kind of flip-flop happens a lot in exactly as you're talking about in this case. So um, back in March of uh, uh, this year, uh, antiempire.com had up a, an article, ADL defends Ukraine's neo-Nazis. They don't attack Jews or Jewish institutions, um, where they're saying, um, uh, basically, there are neo-Nazis in Ukraine, just as there are in the US and in Russia, for that matter. But they're a very marginal group with no political influence and who don't attack Jews or Jewish inf- uh, institutions. And yet... Um, the ADL back in 2019 was saying the Ukrainian extremist group called the Azov Battalion has ties to neo-Nazis. I mean, we've seen a billion examples of this, the BBC, New York Times, right. others who were calling it out a few years ago. Suddenly it's like, no, that doesn't exist. You're a crazy crank. And reality is just whatever they say it is, isn't it? Right. Again, exact same playbook. Right. Well, I, this is a good place to include the question that I that I had or just the thought if you want you, you know comments on is the idea of the base. You know, there's something Whitney Webb and I have talked about this new group that essentially is is using the same terminology. Like, so the base is the translation. And and he, of course, on the record, has ties back to the State Department, the Department of Homeland Security. He was involved in intelligence, worked in Afghanistan, you know, with counterinsurgency. And count- I mean, it's just like a ridiculous resume for exactly what you'd expect if he was going to be a, a PSYOP or, you know, creating this new group. Now, how whether that's the reality or not, it's impossible. We at least need to ask that question because it's, it's an exact model. I mean, you're just doing the same thing all over again, in my opinion. I wanted your thoughts on that in general, James or Brock, or you know, either one of you want to comment on whether you think that is something new or you know what it is. Brock, what do you think? I think it's just a continuation of the of the the 
the program that has worked so successfully over the over the last few decades, centuries. Yeah, yeah. If it just, ain't broke, don't just fix swap, it. <laughs> just swap out the actors, swap out the characters. Exactly right. I think I think people do get sometimes too hung up on names and terminology. Um, for example. I don't think I'm going to address it in part three. We're not finished, finalized part three yet, but I'm pretty sure, well, I might address it tangentially. But like, for example, ISIS and people, you know, make a big deal out of that name. And, oh, uh, Islamic uh, State in uh, Iraq and Syria. Uh, no, it's Israeli Secret Intelligence Service. Case closed. <laughs> Problem solved, guys. <laughs> Without realizing, well, actually, ISIS is one translation of numerous different translations of this Arabic name. And, oh, by the way, that Arabic name is just one name for the hundred things. So things like the base, um, as was pointed out in this documentary, and I know you pointed it out when it came up, um, uh, Robin Cook uh, famously uh, came came out and said, uh, the base is just refers to the CIA database of Mujahideen. But as I said specifically in this documentary, he didn't provide any indication of how he knew this, where this information was coming from. It was just a statement that he made and died in mysterious circumstances shortly thereafter. Make of that what you will. But I remember that being sort of a big talking point in the 9-11 truth community back when I was first getting into it, mid-2000s. Uh, I'm not sure I put a lot of weight or emphasis on that, about as much as I put in this documentary. Again, they use the name. Uh, okay. Um, another thing that I hope people point out or recognize is I did address the Tim Osman thing because everyone will, of a certain age in the truth movement will say, oh, you know, Osama bin Laden was just Tim Osman. That was his CIA code name. How do we know that? Oh, we know this from one handwritten page that literally could have been written by anyone that was being proffered by uh, people of questionable veracity at the, you know, decades ago with no, no underlying substance to point it, back it up, nothing around it that would that would in any way line up with this supposed trip that Osama bin Laden supposedly took at this time. There's no other corroborating evidence for it. It's literally just someone coming along with a handwritten piece of paper saying, look, he was called Tim Osman. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't put any emphasis or trust in that. It could be true. I'm not mm -hmm. saying it isn't. It's just, I have no reason for believing it. Anyway, that's a long-winded way of getting to the point, which is that ultimately, yeah, when it comes to things like the base in its current context, it's obviously, it's not, I, I don't know if I put emphasis on the name, although it is weird. Why would you choose that name except as some sort of reference? To well, to elaborate really quickly, my, my thought is how it connects to the same kind of PSYOP situation. Because the, the idea is the base is, is, is a person who's moved mm. to Russia. It's based out of Russia. And it's a white supremacist group that they're helping build and their connections with yeah. the groups there. And like, it's all kind of building into yeah. the same idea. Yeah, it's like yeah, Afghanistan yeah. model all over again. You know? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that was the point I was eventually getting to. I wasn't really addressing you that right. It was just I was addressing that. But yeah, the model, the model of what is being done. And exactly as Brock says, it's, hey, it worked before. Let's do yeah. it again. Um, I, th I think that's ultimately it. This is a template that can and will be rolled out as often as is necessary. And unfortunately, if you have the bully pul pulpit of the legacy dinosaur media that can still reach a lot of people and set the sort of guidelines and parameters for debate and discussion, then they can corral a lot of people. And the way the alternative media can fall into that trap is by only covering, hey, look, the New York Times said this today, but it's wrong because of this. The BBC said this today, but it's wrong because of this. You're still only ever reporting on what they're saying, essentially. So I think we have to avoid that trap as well. And that's how we get out of these ridiculous propaganda traps. We have to point out the absurdity of them 
And the idea that, hey, you know that existential threat that you were hyping for the first two decades of this century that turned out to be smoke and mirrors? I'm going to go out on a limb and say, unless you prove to me that this isn't smoke and mirrors, I'm not going to believe you. Even if we can just get people to that part of the ideological stance of of approaching the world, I think we'll have made some significant progress towards disarming this kind of propaganda. Yeah, that's one thing that I really think we need to try to change. One of these shifts we need is I often point that out of the day, the new dangly cat toy, whatever they want to hang in front of you. And we all bat at it. Even even when we talk about like, you know, pointing out how it's wrong or, you know, we that's important. But as you're saying, we need to stop letting them set the tone and leading the conversation because that's the same point, like the QAnon thing that gets you asking the wrong questions. It doesn't they don't care what answers you find. You know, I think that's so important to the way we need to change our perception today. Definitely. Anybody have any other questions they wanted to include? I had one last thing I just wanted to point out, unless any other chat questions. We're getting close to about two hours. I think it's a good spot to, to wrap it. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Well, I, I just wanted your one last thought, James, in regard to the, the consulate discussion. I mean, it's one of those points that it just, it's incredible. How in the world you can have somebody like, and for, I didn't even see that part of it until I really watched the documentary the first time and didn't, you know, understand that this is a person who's literally pointing out that the CIA stepped in to his supervisor and put these people through knowing they were on the terrorist list. And, you know, it's just, it's just clownish. Like it's so obvious that there's something suspicious there. And as a person tight, I mean, if you see that point, you need to question the rest of the narrative that leads after it, you know? So I just kind of wanted your thoughts on how relevant that was, or, you know, just, and and why that's not to the point about reaching everybody. How is that Mm. not a, you know, point that everyone's talking about? Right. Brock, you said that that point had a particular effect on people you showed it to? Yeah, absolutely. That was one of the big sticking points that people uh, were left with after they watched the uh, watch part one was the whole uh, Jeddah consulate visa issue. Um, for people who want actually even more extrapolated detail about that, I will recommend them the 9-11 whistleblowers episode about Michael Springman. That goes in a little bit, quite quite a bit more detail about, about the Jeddah consulate and how, was it 14 or 15? Of the uh, of the hijackers went through. Yeah, that I always way. forget. It's always a question because you can, there's never a like nice single number. You've got to like piece it yeah. together from the different documents, and I always forget and what like, the number think, ends up being. But uh, yeah. a lot of the um, yeah, and 9/11 hijackers got their visas through. Jet, yeah. yeah, and majority of those visas were shoddily, incorrectly filled out, and yeah, so yeah. Blatant errors on the forms and things. Yeah. Whoops. 15 mistakes in a row. Our bad. Yeah. At the exact same consulate where a decade before they were letting Osama bin Laden's men go, go to the States for, to hook up with their Al-Kifa buddies. And who else was at the Al-Kifa center? Oh, that's right. Ali Mohammed, the green beret special forces training officer who on the weekends went out to New York to, talk to Muslim extremists and hey man you know and and who oh by the way took time off from the US army to go fight in Afghanistan which is just i mean you cannot get more ridiculous than that oh yeah i'm just a you know a literal member of the US armed forces who's going to take take personal leave that wasn't granted by the way just disappears to Afghanistan where he could potentially be caught, killed, whatever. And hey, there's this US military officer who's fighting in this war. Could literally have started World War III. Gets back. His commanding officer is like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to ring the bell about this to my commanding officers, but they're, they're not doing anything. <laughs> like, James, James, he brought back a belt of a dead Russian soldier. All forgiven. <laughs> yeah, anyway. I, there's so many points like so that that are points, just yeah. beyond belief. You know, yeah. like where there's just no way you can see it 
without understanding there's at least some level of manipulation in there. Yeah, and that's what's so great about this. So I'm really looking forward to part two and especially part three. I just think this is so important that I hope this gets a lot more attention. And any last thoughts you guys want to leave us with until next week? I have a last thought. Anyone who is watching this on your stream who is not already a supporter of The Last American Vagabond should be supporting your work. Thank you for doing what you do, Ryan. And um, I'm absolutely happy to help support what you do because I think it is important and doing the daily wrap up and the kind of daily grind of putting these pieces together and explaining them for people. I know, I know as a content producer, that is not easy work. So uh, hats off to what you do and I hope people will support you in it. Well, thank you. That means a lot to me guys that really appreciate that. And, you know, same, same in reverse shout out to you guys, obviously, even the idea of like the source material and, you know, there's very few out there that, take the time to include all that. And I, that's a you know page from your book. So I appreciate that. Well, I'm excited about this guys because I, and I'm, I'm actually most, I'm, I'm glad it will be on September 11th. Like I, I hope it just finds a way to squeak through to people that have never seen it before. And they go back and watch the first ones. So more's coming your way guys. So thank you, James Brock for being here. And I hope you'll be there next week as well, Brock. And as always, everybody question, everything come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant.